Hello, welcome to Conversations in Calvinism. I'm Dan Chapo with my good friend Tarrant Fan, and happy to be back. How are you doing, Tarrant Fan? I'm doing well, having a great time. I've been spending my free time listening to Nick Sayers talking about unicorns. So, not that's not for today's discussion, obviously, but uh, looking forward to a little bit more on that at some later point. Yeah. So um, I saw this comment from discerner and i thought it was appropriate for this topic because we're um, going on and on about free race but it might also be appropriate about unicorns especially um on a merry-go-round because that's where you might find a unicorn these days but <laughs> there's the carousels those carousel unicorns those are the uh the best the, the best place to find them well yes uh, so, God willing, I have a debate with Eli on the schedule right now, I think in February. And then there's plans to do a limited atonement debate with someone else later. I think like either, the, I think February 28th. So I'll be debating on that. You, What other debates do you currently have on the schedule? Nothing or? Just, just the one with... Uh... Charles Jennings on the Hebrews warning passages. So Jennings is obviously from a free grace standpoint. So this covering this topic with Eli um, is going to have some collateral benefit, I suppose, with uh, on on for my debates with Charles. But his are specific to the Hebrews warning passages. So it'll be exegetically focused on um, those passages. I take the position that uh, the warnings are one of many of the means that God uses to preserve his people and keep them from falling away. Sounds good. When it comes to preparing for that, if you want to do any of the episodes specifically preparing for that, you know, we can always switch over. Like, like, like Tzernur says, we're kind of going a little bit round and round on this. Although, honestly, he hasn't been giving us any feedback on our episodes. So, so far, we're just going forward in terms of reviewing the materials he's providing line by line, essentially responding to him. So I think we're okay. The, the unicorns one is definitely more of a carousel experience, I, I, I fear. But you know, there's a, there are a few more points I'd like to wrap up on that. I've been updating the blog and like I said, listening to Nick. So we'll see, we'll see how that turns out. Shall we jump over to the video? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. And I believe I have this set, the speed set at 1.25. I hope no one All thinks right. there's anything sus about that, but if they do, so be it. Well, anyway, here we go. Pre-cooperation, we've got in sanctification, no sanctification. I'm gonna back it up just like then 10 seconds. For entrance into heaven. So here's the formula. If no free cooperation with God in sanctification, no sanctification, does it proves a spurious faith and thus no heaven? So if we do not choose to cooperate with God according to the Lord's salvation, we will not enter into heaven. So entrance into heaven is not by faith alone, after all. It's by sanctification. Now, an objection arises, but sanctification is totally caused by God. God himself, he is the one who causes you to be sanctified. You have no role in it. There are a few problems with this claim. Number one, why then do scriptures admonish and exhort us to choose to cooperate with God in our sanctification? Also, why are we rewarded for our sanctification if it's totally monergistic, if it's only God who does it all? Let me, I'm just backing it up so that we have the, uh, 
the slide, the full slide there before we go on. Any, would you like to start with some thoughts, Dan, or prefer me to go first? Uh, um, my main concern here is that I think he's confusing sanctification with good works itself, right? Sanctification is uh, our state and um, our level of maturity or something like that. And it's distinct from the good works that we're able to perform because we're sanctified to that extent. So that sanctification um, diminishes the fleshly sinful desires and increases the good desires. And um, because we have less sinful desires, it might be easier to do good works, but they're different. So when it says scripture admonishes and exhorts us to choose to cooperate with God in our sanctification, I don't think that's quite accurate. I think because we're sanctified, to the state that we are, it's either easier or harder to obey God's commands and cooperate with God's grace in obeying His commands. But um, I think I think He's needs to draw probably a, a firmer distinction between sanctification and good works. It's it's almost as if He's saying that they're the same. At least that's the concern I have. Now that's probably not my only concern on this page. In fact, it's actually not. But I think I'll start there, and now I'm curious to hear your reaction to this um, this argument. It's tough to separate out the parts of his argument that are specifically about criticizing JD uh, and Martin's position, which is also my position, and how much of this is about more broadly criticizing all of the well, the rest of Protestantism on this particular point. So on the first, on the, the more general part, I know there's a, there's, a, there's an analogy that comes to mind, which is, it comes to mind because I'm looking at my own webcam and on the red, on the, on one side of the camera lens, right now there's a little red light on. And it would be true to say, if that red light's on, or excuse me, if the red light is not on, I'm not streaming live. My, vi my video is not streaming live if that red light is not on. But if someone would say, well, but that red light doesn't cause anything. That, ray, that red light isn't, you don't need that red light in order to capture the picture. If you cover that red light with a piece of black tape and no one would even know it was on, but your camera would still be working. So why? What's the what's the significance of this red light? It, it's not the cause of why you're streaming. It isn't the reason why you're streaming. So how can you say that if if it's not on, you're not streaming? And the answer is, it's not. It's a signal. It's a sign. It shows something else. In this case, it shows that there's power going to the you know the camera circuit or whatever else. It's just a sign. It's just a symbol. Now. The relation, the exact relationship of works to faith and faith to the entrance in heaven isn't exactly the same. It's an analogy. It's not a, you know, a direct one-for-one -one lineup. But that idea is, to the extent that we're talking about good works that are the result of sanctification, that are the result of God's transformation of our heart, to the extent that those are a sign of the faith that we have, 
it's just like like treating the red light as the cause of the recording instead of realizing that the red light is a result of the recording. In other words, it's because the camera's on and recording that the red light is on. But if the if it wasn't on and recording, you wouldn't have that red light. So that that seems there seems to be some part of that fallacy in this equation that he's put here. And the where that fallacy seems to come in is while it's true that well, first of all, it's not so much about our this is you know, the part where maybe we separate Calvinism and non-Calvinism or something like that. It's less about our choice to cooperate with God in doing good works that we want to enter into heaven. It's more about actually doing the good works than about the cooperation per se. But the if we don't do good works, we won't enter into heaven. That doesn't mean that we enter into heaven because of those good works. Those good works that we do are not the ground of our justification. They're not the basis upon which we're justified in God's sight. And they're not the basis upon which we're pronounced not guilty at the judgment throne of God. We're, we're pronounced not guilty on the basis of the merits of Christ, not on our merits. And therefore, it's not, we're not justified, we're not enter, we're not entering to heaven by faith plus works. We're entering into heaven through faith, but on account of Christ's work. Now, as far as sanctification is totally caused by God himself, I mean, I agree with that statement, but I'm not sure it fully answers the, I mean, it does, it partly answers some of the way he's presented things, and we we ourselves raised it on the last slide. Yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm looking at this, obviously, from a different perspective than you are, because I think Eli and I probably agree in libertarian free will and um, would reject. Um, so monergism might be an interesting uh, question, exactly how we cash that out. So we can set that complication aside. But I do think that God is the total cause of our uh, sanctification. If we resist, perhaps we can resist sanctification, but any progress that's made is made because of uh, God's grace. Now, like I said, I think he's confused a little bit between good works and sanctification itself. Um, but the, I, so the distinction I'd make, so like, let's say, for example, um, my, you know, if my kid was two years old, I wouldn't necessarily expect them to be mature enough to tie their shoes. Now that my kids are 16, I expect them to tie their shoes. Okay. So, you know, that's just a, the difference. Now the, actual tying of the shoes might be the associated work with that level of maturity. It's just at what state, at what stage of they are. So what I'm saying is that any progress in maturity that we have is caused by God himself. We're not pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Now, let's say it's conditioned on non-resistance or even from my standpoint, I think it is conditioned on faith. And I think free will plays a role in not resisting faith, um, not resisting God's grace that's leading us into greater sanctifications. Um, so in, in that sense, I think free will does play somewhat of a role in explaining why one person is more sanctified than another, let's say, for example. But um, and I think that answers this question as to, well, why does the scripture admonish us and why are there See, I wouldn't say, 
so much as like rewards for sanctification, but the good works that come out of it. But even, even setting that aside, that I think that explains the exhortations um, from, from that standpoint of uh, resistance or non-resistance. Um, so even if you don't take a determinist monergistic approach to sanctification, I still think you end up being... I still don't think you end up with Eli's position. What to get to Eli's position, I think what's what's happened there is he's saying he's assuming that not only is there free will involved in sanctification, but that any progress made in sanctification is the result not just of free will, but of works themselves in that we're working our way towards sanctification. That's the issue. And that's exactly what Paul is addressing in Galatians 3 when he's teaching believers that they're justified by faith alone. And he's doing that not so they can get saved or converted in the first place, but so that they can make progress in their sanctification. That's the issue. So that what we do not hold is that by doing good works, we are sanctifying ourselves. And that's somewhat of a, I mean, maybe uh, I would, I would, I'm going to give Eli the benefit of the doubt, but it, it turns into somewhat of a straw man because that's not our position. We're not saying we're, we're sanctifying ourselves by being good. Okay. And, you know, the only thing I guess I would add to that beyond what I originally said was to say, the there are well let's put it this way he's posed the question of one and two almost as if jd is already in agreement with his idea that sanctification is the ground of our entrance into heaven and therefore, he's saying, well, if it's the ground of our entrance into heaven and it's totally up to God, then why are we commanded to do these things? So he's framed it. He's framed the issue in a little bit of a circular way, or at least in a way that doesn't account for JD's position, I, I think. But I, I could be mistaken. Uh, I wanted to say I, I saw this comment. Good day, all and good day slam <laughs> so uh it's good to see people greeting each other and then patrick says can i ask the question if grace isn't free how much exactly does it cost a little humor to uh lighten this the cost is christ's life but you know free grace is an acceptable term it's just uh not the position it's free grace theology right it's it's not it's not free grace that's the issue it's free grace theology that's the issue it's kind of like it's good to be witnesses of the lord in the sense that the scripture text from which the Jehovah's Witnesses get their name, but to be a Jehovah's Witness is not quite the same thing as to uh, uh, to take an extreme example. Uh, it's not quite the same same thing as just to follow that verse. Should we jump to the next slide? Yes, let's do. Worried for a sanctification if it's totally monergistic, if it's only God who does it all. Oh. Now I will I will skip this point because it does it all. Sorry. Also, why are we rewarded for our sanctification if it's totally monergistic, if it's only God who does it all? Uh, the shared tenet with the Reformed theology, the saved cannot lose his salvation, 
And okay. you know, that broadly also conveys to the classical Arminian view as distinct from the other Arminian view, which is... Uh, well, so, okay, so classical Arminianism, so the five points of the remonstrance did not um, say, did not take a stand on whether true believers ever fall away and uh, stop believing and end up in hell. Um, they just they, they just didn't take a stand on that position. They they left it open. Now later remonstrants did take that position. In fact, it wasn't long after. Um, the history is interesting. We won't get into the history not because it's not interesting. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think that's um, an interesting historical note in terms of you know classic armenian theology and that sort of thing but for the most part people that go by the names of armenian today will say that salvation can be lost and um you'll find this view mostly in calvinist circles as well as baptist circles um the view that salvation can't be lost um, but it, you know, it's in the Baptist faith, it's a message, and various places like that. So, anyways, we can we can go on, but uh, it, getting into which groups believe exactly what can be a little tricky. Salvation is preserved by the Father. That is our position. Sure. Uh, and I, I'm not. I don't recall why. What justification he gives for skipping through slides here but I just thought I'd comment on it before it disappeared. I don't remember how much more text comes on. Now, I'll... I'll... Uh, so according to his plan, all who are justified have been glorified. We certainly agree. That's one of the reasons we don't we believe that Christians will persevere. So he says, so what he's drawing a distinction, though, is between persevere and preserve. They're very similar sets of English letters, but the, the sense... He's saying that it's your kind of your salvation. You, there's like a salvation characteristic of a person, and that that lever is uh, permanently switched. But lots of other things can change, including faith and including works and so forth. Uh, and I think some of these same some of these same verses are verses we would apply to the preservation not just of salvation but of believers yeah. being continuing to believe yeah i mean i agree so especially so the in the ephesians one it says that we're going to be holy and blameless and um in john 10 so yeah 28 and 29 says we're in the hand of god the father and in the hand of the son but it also, just a couple of verses before, says that Christ's sheep follow him. Um, and that means believe um, and continue believing. And they, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they know him and they follow him. Um, that, that's uh, that's the, uh, the faith. That's a condition. But, but, but as it stands, just in isolation, if you look at this uh, from a, uh, stove piped off. It's, I agree with it. Um, it's just, unfortunately, it doesn't go as far as it probably needs to. And I apologize. I'm trying to pause this as he goes through, and I may have to pause it and then go back and a few times. 
because I know he he kind of hurries by this. And I totally understand that point as well. I mean, time is limited in an opening presentation. He would like to say more than he has time for. Well, skip his point. Oh, let me go back one more time. Let's see. Only God who does it all. Now, I will, I will skip this point. There we go. We are preserved by God's unchanging faithfulness. God doesn't nullify his gifts. Salvation is God's gift. Thus, God is not going to nullify it. His works are eternal. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we can become too much unfaithful so as to lose our salvation, then he says, uh, and I'm reading, for those listening only, I'm reading what's on the screen from Eli. Uh, he's saying, then it means that being a child of God depends on our faithfulness, even if it is partially dependent on it. However, being God's child has nothing to do with our faithfulness. Any uh, any comments on that one? That seems to be the meatiest of his bullets. So, so the, the passage that he's referencing um, says, if we're... Uh, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Um, oh, hi, hi, hi Charles. Uh, looking forward to our uh, debate on the Hebrews passages. So, yeah, the, the passage in, in uh, 2 Timothy, I think um, we've talked about it before, how God's remaining faithful is in the sense of trustworthy. And faithless can have the opposite sense of that, either untrustworthy or it can mean unbelieving. I, I think we... I would make the argument very strongly based on the usage in the previous verse where it says, um, this is a faithful saying. It's That's a reliable saying, a trustworthy saying, not a believing saying. And the, in the sense that God remains faithful in that he's trustworthy, not that he's believing. God isn't believing something, like God isn't trusting Christ for his salvation. So I would argue that the faithless here, the faith, uh, faithfulness here is referring to um, trust being trustworthy folks so um yeah so i, I guess um I, I wouldn't use that passage to justify people can stop believing and remain um christian so now if you use that passage to say um well we can disobey god's commands we can be unreliable we can be you know uh we can fall into sin in a black slide. Yeah, I think that it is a fair take. Now, how much is always the question um, that uh, we don't have a bright line on. But anyways, so now he goes on. So if we can become too much, okay, how much is too much? Yeah, unfaithful to lose our salvation. Okay, that's the issue. At least from my standpoint, we don't um, okay, let, here, let me let me make this. So he's making the claim that people lose their salvation because of sins, because of evil works. Now, once again, clarifying the positions, the Roman Catholic position in the Council of Trent, and uh, I think in session 15, point blank says that a believer who remains a believer while they're committing mortal sin is damned. Okay. They are believing in Christ, and at the same time, they're committing moral sin. That person is damned. Now, from my standpoint, I'm the exact opposite of that. And I, most evangelical Arminians that I've run across are the exact opposite of that. They will say, no, if they stop believing, then they've lost their salvation. 
But if they continue to believe and just commit and commit sins, it's bad, but they haven't lost their salvation because they remain believers. And so that's the position that uh, Eli is addressing. I think it's most appropriate to aim that position at the Roman Catholic position. There, I think it does, his argument does have some purchase because that's exactly what they say. Um, but that doesn't apply to most evangelicals. And it, I don't I don't think it applies to the reform. I don't know. I'll leave that to you to define that. But on the Arminian side, very few would say that. So, okay, then let's go on. Then it means that being a child of God depends on our faithfulness. Right. Then that's exactly what we don't say, <laughs> uh, even if it partially depends on it. However, being God's child has nothing to do with our faithfulness. Okay. Um, I've said my piece. I, you know, obviously, the, I understand where he's going with this, and some of that I don't agree with. But in terms of what he's literally written here, that we are preserved by the un, by the immutability of God, and that God is not going to change His mind about the gifts He's given to us, and that salvation is a gift, and God is not going to uh, back out of it. The, uh, <laughs> by the way, Patrick said, if staying in sin automatically sends a person to hell, then you're in big trouble for being non-reformed. So thankfully, uh, I do think that, I mean, I think it's fair to say that any erroneous doctrine is in some sense a sin, but, and that uh, we are saved despite our sins, including those of, in, you know, places where our doctrine is not, not correct. So not as so much to cast shade on Dan, but I'm sure my own doctrine also has some errors that I haven't identified, but you know, I'm sure there must be some. So let me continue. If we become too much unfaithful- Are, 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 are you an unrepentant Calvinist? <laughs> I'm an unabashed Calvinist. Not, not even, not just unrepentant, unabashed. And okay. I boldly proclaim that. If we can become too much unfaithful and lose our salvation, well, obviously, that's not a position that the Calvinist holds. And that may be why he's skipping past this, because Martin doesn't say that we can. Uh, if we can lose our salvation, then it means that being a child of God depends on our faithfulness. Well, here, it might be interesting to distinguish between the adoption of sons, which is one aspect of salvation, and the uh, justification through faith. So it would be a strange situation if God would allow his adopted child to fall into unbelief and therefore not to have justification. So we wouldn't expect that to be the case, but the idea that we would lose our adoption as well, that doesn't necessarily follow because it's, it's a different it's not the same gift and it's not, uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I think it would just be a situation where we should be more concerned for the reasons that are laid out in Hebrews. And maybe this comes to the warning passages, but you know, the, one of the things that was of great fear for the people of Israel, one of the threats was the threat towards those who broke covenant with God. 
that was a threat that was uniquely for the Israelites. The the Canaanites were not in a covenant, not in that same covenant relationship with God. The you know the Moabites, the Ammonites, all the other nations around them were not in that same covenant relationship with God, and they weren't covenant breakers in the way that the Israelites were when they would forsake God to go seek other gods. So, you know, people who are associated with God, who say they're Christians, who say they're believers, and then turn away from that, should be more afraid because it's a more, a more serious situation. That's why there's a comment. It's impossible. Like if you should be, if you were able to lose what you have, there's no additional sacrifice. Like in the Old Testament, if you if you sinned, uh, and then you would come back and bring another sacrifice, and if you sinned, you'd come and bring another sacrifice. But there's only one sacrifice now, and that's Christ. So if you if you leave behind that sacrifice, there's no renewing by renewing to repentance. And I, I don't know if that's getting too much into the topic that you plan to debate, but it does. It's a serious point. It's it's something that we people need to take seriously. The, the idea that you can kind of pop in and out of salvation, that that doesn't work. It might be the case that it works, that you could lose salvation based on some of the warning passages if you don't understand that God's going to prevent you from, from, from doing that. But to say that, oh, well, you can lose it, but don't worry, you can just get it back, and then you can lose it, and then you can get it back, that's not how those warning passages are portrayed. It's not like you're just back to square one. In those warning passages, you're like, it, it's a much more dire, at least that's my understanding. I don't know if you have a different understanding of it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. That's that's the way I would read them as well. I, I think some people would say, well, it's this, you know, ongoing, uh, while they are crucifying the Son of God um, af afresh. Um, so they might say, okay, so while the rebellion is going on or the apostasy is going on, they can't be renewed to repentance. But see, to me, that's too trivial. That can't be what the passage means. Now, others would say, well, there's two different types of apostasy talked about in the New Testament, one that's a remediable and the other that's not. But I don't see enough justification for that either. I see the logic of it, right? Like, okay, you know, there could be, there's, I don't see anything that's saying there can't be two different types of apostasy, but um, I just don't see that being taught, um, at least in any um, clear way in the New Testament. So I know that some people have that view where they can fall in and out of salvation or that sort of thing. Um, that's the definitely the Roman Catholic view. Um, but it's, to me, I think the best explanation of the Hebrew 6 passage is that apostasy is without remedy. Point because um, Gady and I agree. Well, I caught it right, right halfway between uh, refreshing that next text, I think. There we go. So salvation is preserved by the Son, says Eli. Christ's sacrifice, he says, has covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. He continues, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, Hebrews 10, 14. 
and he find, he concludes, if we can lose our salvation, then there is a sin that is impossible for Christ to pay. Any thoughts, Dan? Yeah, I'm not so sure that he's uh, accurate in those explanations in Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 14. The issue that I have with it is it seems very different than what we see in John, 1 John 1, where as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, um, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from all sins. So it's this present tense cleansing. So the once for all time seems to be that once a sin is forgiven, it's forgiven eternally. Um, but I don't think it means that it's forgiving your future sins, like the sins that you're going to commit tomorrow or forgiven today. Um, at least I have a difficult time squaring that with other passages in scripture that don't speak of it that way. But I think that's somewhat of a trivial point. His big picture point that salvation is preserved by the son, I 100% agree with and uh, you know, praise God for that. And I think from that standpoint, we can agree with each other. But in there's there's a nuance that um, I would be hesitant if he's. I think what he's saying is that our future, you know, tomorrow sins are forgiven today. Um, and I don't think. Yeah, actually, that's what he's saying. Christ's sins has covered all our sins, past, present, and the future. I don't know how that could be if the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us as we're walking in the light. Uh, oh, actually, I, let me let me let me add to that. Isn't there a passage in Romans that just like point blank says that like um, for the remissions of sins that are past? And, and maybe there's like some nuance in inter interpreting that. Um, uh, Apologize. You can keep rolling. I'll look it up. But I, I, I feel like there was something in Romans that says exactly that. Uh, Patrick comments: Christ is the only Savior. If you leave Christ, there is nothing else that you can do, uh, or sorry, that can do what only Christ can do. Certainly agree. So, sorry. Uh, so yeah. So Romans three twenty five says. Uh, whom Christ has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare the righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Um, anyways. Uh, Discerner suggests that there's a second kind of apostasy based on the expression return to me and the parable of the prodigal son. Um, it's a good point, sir. Um, let me think about that. While Dan is thinking, I would add, I would say there's a distinction in Reformed theology, at least, between partial backsliding and full apostasy. So the uh, believers can backslide and they can for a time both you know, temporarily and incompletely fall away, but a full, fully falling away isn't possible because God will prevent it. Uh, but yeah, but there are certainly those phrases like return to me. I don't remember if those are a translational gloss, return to me, or whether and it just says turn to me. But in any event, I think that there are cases where uh, like, when, it, when he says to Peter, and when you are converted, uh, was it heal your brethren or something like that? 
I believe uh, was the word, but but the idea was that Peter was going to undergo a, a chastisement for his denial of Christ. But after he's converted, in other words, after he's turned back to Christ, then he will, uh, then he'll be able to feed the brethren. But that doesn't mean that Peter totally fell away during that time period. That's at least my understanding. Yeah. Uh, should we? Oh, I haven't offered my own thoughts on this. I do agree that Christ's sacrifice covers all of the sins of believers, including the sins that they had before they first started to believe the ones that they have while they're believing, and uh, the sins that they will have in the future. Uh, and, but I, th I think there's a non-imputation of future sins to them. That's one of the gifts that's given to us in salvation is the being, you know, being that man to whom God will not impute sin. And I... Uh, However, we appropriate the righteousness of Christ by faith. So to suggest that we have that apart from faith is the, the part that's really troubling. So the Hebrews 10.10 passage, the time frame there is not related to, is related to Christ once for all time, right? So that's, that Christ isn't being sacrificed repeatedly or offered repeatedly. Uh, uh, pay, 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 pay close attention, Roman Catholics. But um, the Hebrews ten fourteen passage is talking about um, us, that the sins that are gone are gone forever. Right. Uh, thanks, Patrick. We... We enjoy doing them, and we hope they continue to be a blessing to you and others. Uh, let me let me continue the presentation. That so. Uh, okay. I will I will skip this point because um, JD and I agree that this one. I think this was the only bullet he had under this. But salvation is also preserved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has sealed us until the deal. The until. The day of redemption. Uh, any any additional thoughts there, or that's just a scripture quotation. So obviously, I agree. Uh, so uh, it said not okay. until something. I couldn't quite catch that. Well, I was this point because see if I can catch it. Uh, and I agree. I'm getting epilepsy here. Sorry. There we go. Not until we become faith unfaithful or fall away. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, look, that, that's that's the whole... I People have a tendency to say, well, if the, warning, if the warnings are a means, then they're not really a warning, that sort of thing. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a point to which I can understand and appreciate that, the, t the tension they have there. Um, the beauty of the position, though, is you can take each text to read exactly what they say, and there is no contradiction, right? You can, um, 
Actually, I want to say there, there's there's a, there's a similar situation. We'll look at it, I, I, not, not to, to take a tangent, but you can read the Hebrew passages in the most natural way possible. Then you can read passages like this in the most natural way possible. And they're both true, and they don't contradict. Now, I was going to say that there's an example where there's a conditional with an absolute at the same time and that I was just reading just the other day. What is it, John? It is in a, in a in a context that had nothing to do with soteriology, but I thought it was good. Um, okay, this is John chapter twenty one, and this this is actually a gloss from um, John, I think. Um, okay, so. Peter, okay, so this is Peter and Jesus talking, and Jesus says to Peter, if I will tarry, uh, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to do with thee? Follow me. And then went out a saying abroad among the brethren that the disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? And what I love about that passage is he is reconciling the conditional statement, if this and that, with the, <laughs> the, the, the conditional not happening. Um, and I mean, that's exactly right. There's no logical issue with saying, you know, if you touch the stove, you're going to burn your hand and then preventing you at all costs to never touch the stove. There's just nothing wrong with it. Those two things fit together like a hand and glove. They do not contradict. So anyways, um, I said my piece. But I take this passage that exactly the same way that Eli does. He, But he derives from that. He denies the conditional. If you touch the stove, you won't burn your hand. And that's the exact... Did that is unjustified and it's got hidden assumptions on Eli's part that he gets from passages that say that we're sealed into the day of redemption to even if we fall away, even if we stop believing, we would remain saved. He's adding, he's got to add assumptions in there to, to deny the conditional. Now, discerner, has his usual has uh, has his uh, I would say usual I don't know if it's usual yet but here his thought was watch out for that thing that can't possibly really happen to you careful and he says that's not a normal meaning yeah so right the, the, so that's the, I am sympathetic with what you're saying but it happened I mean that's exactly what happens both in scripture and in life right <laughs> we we simply do say exactly that to your kids. I mean, it's, it is not abnormal to tell your kids, if you touch the stove, you will burn your hand, right? Without any intention of ever letting them touch the stove. Yeah, and... And it's it's not abnormal for Christ to say, don't listen to these false teachers. If it was possible, they would deceive the elect. That salvation cannot be lost. Full, full assurance of salvation is possible today. Now, this somewhat touches on the theme of your most recent debate. I think it was your most recent debate, which was that 
one aspect of the error of free grace FGT is that they give false assurance. So they say full assurance of salvation is possible today. I agree that full assurance of salvation is possible today, but there's a difference between full assurance of salvation and false assurance of salvation. And if you're living a life that has no fruit of the spirit in it, you shouldn't have assurance, even if in fact you have salvation, you shouldn't have assurance in that situation. Right. I agree. Yeah. So, right. Full assurance is, yeah. It, okay. Full assurance is possible if you self-examine, not, you know, reckless, right? Like, the, right. Not, not just presume because people can be self-deceived. You do have to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. That's definitely true. Um, but yeah, if you examine and get, uh, if you go through the process that First uh, John lays out, you test yourself, and yeah, you can you can have full assurance today. I noticed discerner has some more comments. Are, are you okay with that? Continuing to discuss them in in line? Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah, that removes free will, um, sort of. So. It doesn't remove free will as far as conversion goes, but it is true that in some sense that um, salvation becomes sort of like a one way. You know, once you're saved, then you can't back out of it. But I'd say there's a big difference in terms of determinism. Like determinism will say God can determine you to do something, um, whereas uh, this would be God preventing or permitting apostasy. And so God can, God can prevent it. Now, it's certainly true that let's say, let's, let's say if you, let's say if somebody dies, like God literally ends their life to prevent apostasy. Yeah. Take away their free will, not by determining in the sense of um, compatibilist determinism kicks in as opposed to libertarian free will. No, he just takes away their life. So um, in, in that sense, I mean, I kind of agree that um, there's, there's a sense in which uh, free will doesn't control everything. And yes, this is this puts a little bit more emphasis on the provident side. However, it's still not deterministic, and that's important. Um, let's see. Okay, let's keep going. If I say the stove is hot, so don't touch it, the implication is always... You could touch it. Okay. Yeah, that's maybe. So in a, in one sense, there's, there's certainly some sense in which that's true. Um, but not in every sense. And the reason why is because of, you know, a father can stop his kid or his, his younger kid from touching the stove. Now, um, it's not that the kid doesn't have the muscles or whatever to touch the stove. It's just, they're not going to have that opportunity. That opportunity is going to be taken away. So it's not the it's not a di diminution of the kid's abilities. It's just the opportunity that's gone. Um, let's see. Warnings could could theoretically be a means of irresistible grace logically, but the implication seems dishonest. 
Dishonesty, I think, is a, st- a step too far, to be honest, sir. But um, you know, I, I'm not sure what to tell you other than this is exactly what the scripture seems to be teaching, and so I'll, I guess, I'll take the take the charge now. As far as irresistible, why irresistible? Why why not allow uh, some idea that okay, there can be some resistance? Um, it's just that um, God will ultimately step in, including ending life before someone goes too far, right? So they can start heading the wrong direction. They keep heading the wrong direction, but before they go too far, God steps in and stops them. Now, um, I think this view might be a little harder if someone thinks that God doesn't know the future, like an open theist or something like that. But someone that is a um, thinks that God knows the future and can use his knowledge uh, providentially and he can either permit or prevent anything. seems like God can prevent apostasy. So, you know, and that's pretty normal within non-Calvinistic systems. So if where God has either, he's able to permit or prevent anything. So God can permit or prevent apostasy. Okay. Anyways, um, I'll leave it at that. All right. For some reason, Zoom decided to try to take things over. Hopefully, you can still hear me. Yes. Yeah, I got you. Okay. So, I'm forward. So, fully. All right. There was one slide I missed there. Uh, maybe that salvation cannot be lost. So the shared tenet with Arminian theology, a true believer might fall away from the faith or into a life of sin. Yeah, I mean, so I think the Arminian tenet is not just that they might, but that it actually happens. But let's uh, keep playing. So, so, I'm forward. So, full assurance of salvation. That's another point that I think Lordship salvation does not allow. Um, scriptures clearly teach that we can have assurance right now, not in the future. Right now, that we are God's children. Um, I won't read all the uh, verses, but look at First John five, for example. He writes that we may know that we have eternal life. It's not that we self, It's not something that we need to discover in the future after we have persevered in good works. Now, there is a shared tenet with Armenian theology, which I disagree with my fellow Calvinists. I do think that a true believer might fall away from his faith or that he might fall into a life of sin. Look at what Paul says. If you're living in accord with the flesh, you're going to die. That is, a true believer might live by the flesh and experience death, whatever it means here. Paul himself, himself says that he um, disciplines his body so that he himself will not be disqualified. So Paul didn't know himself he would, if he would persevere. The author of Hebrews says that we might drift away. He includes himself in the warning. Uh, Peter says he, he, he's worried that his audience might lose their firm commitment. So any thoughts on these uh, passages? So on the Romans 8 passage, I think that is a warning about apostasy. Um the 
Hebrews 2, I agree. The, the second Peter 3, I agree. And the first John 2. So I think the only one that I am not so confident on that he is correct is the first Corinthians nine twenty seven passage where that might be um, qualifications for the ministry rather than um, Paul concerned that he might not be saved, but the rest of it in, in, in general, I agree with him. Oh, how can somebody be disqualified for the ministry but not being saved? So, like, let, let's say, for example, you know, you're supposed to be the husband of one wife to be a minister or something like that, right? So, as weird as it sounds, so if somebody marries a second wife, okay, <laughs> they shouldn't be a pastor at a church. Now, um, anyways, um, but it doesn't automatically mean that they've lost their salvation. It just means that they shouldn't be a minister in the church at that point, right? So uh, ministers are just held to a higher standard, and the, those standards are laid out in First um, Timothy chapter three and other places, um, Titus, I think. But, it, it, but there's there's certainly qualifications for a bishop. Yeah, there's there's disqualifications. I don't know offhand. Uh, which kind of disqualification Paul has in mind here. But I would say that I mean, it certainly is true that there are more strict requirements for church office than for church membership. So, the, and there's even some, some requirements for like, entry into the list of people to be supported by the church. So if you remember, there's widows that were to be supported by the church, but in order to do that, they had to meet certain qualifications. And uh, one of them, I think, was an age qualification, and another one was that they didn't have uh, family members in the church who could support them. But you know, aside, you know, there was those are certain things that are in the church that do have separate qualifications. And so, you know, if he's talking about those things, that would be not really related to salvation per se. I do understand that in some translations, some of these don't say disqualified. They say something like to be a castaway or something like that, which does seem to imply a more uh, more of a complete departure. And I don't recall offhand which one that is. Uh, now, I I have a I have a little bit of an issue. Like with Hebrews two one, he says, "For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, so that we don't drift away from it." Like, if someone says the reason why we have this anchor is so that we don't drift away from the place where the ship has been. Uh, where we've decided to stay for this evening with the ship. And therefore, we've dropped anchor so that we won't drift away. Like, on the one hand, it's true that we're not going to drift away. But it's also true that the, that the anchor is instrumental in producing that effect, such that if we didn't have the anchor... 
we would need something else to keep us from drifting away. I mean, you could sit there all night battling the winds and, and tacking and so on and so forth to stay in the same spot. But it's not saying that it's the only possible way that this could be accomplished, but it is the means. So I'm not sure why, you know, treating the, you know, attention to God's word as an anchor for our souls is problematic or implies that not just that there, in other words, I don't see why accepting the fact that it's instrumental in this result implies that we should expect that the opposite actually will happen sometimes. Um, real quick, just in this is circling back to the disqualified. Okay, so I think the question here, discerner, is I, I think your question is assuming that it's disqualified um, by God, right? God is either casting the person away or disqualifying them. Now, when it comes to the because a person becoming a pastor, for starters, the standards are set there by God, right? The you know First uh, Timothy three, they're set by God, but then it's either the church that affirms or the elders that affirm, you know, that that examine the candidates to see whether they um, can be be a pastor or should remain a pastor or that sort of thing. Um, so the question there is really, is this disqualification um, by God from heaven or is this a disqualification by people from ministry? Uh, first, first John says in, in 2.24, As for you, see that what you heard from the beginning remains in you. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, if you will also remain in the Son. I have a question for you, Dan. What do you think about this argument about third class conditional? So I have heard that before. I guess, let's see. Um, so the, the first class can additional and i'm trying to remember off the top of my head and it's a it's kind of a complicated point but so there's one that assumes that the conditional will never happen the other assumes that it can happen and the third is ambiguous and decided by context if i'm not correct is that right i can't remember i think that's the case i'll, I'll put a i don't know are you able to if i put something in the private chat are you able to yeah. copy it or use it yeah yeah, I'll try. I'll put it in the main chat for people who are interested. I just know that it's harder to access the main chat through StreamYard. So this is a uh, Grace Theological Journal from 1982 article on third and fourth class conditions. And this one suggests that the third classification of conditional sentences in the Greek New Testament occurs Almost as frequently as the first and five times more frequently than the second, it has many names reflecting different understandings on the part of grammarians of its basic significance. And you identified this form. Where, uh, where are you? Uh, just at the beginning, the very first page of the article. Okay, go ahead. Uh, and it, it says that... Uh, 
the group of conditionals is identified by the use of Ian and the subjunctive mood in the protasis. The Ian, of course, is the ordinary conditional particle, A, found in all the other types of conditions, combined by crasis and contraction with the modal particle Ian. It'd be helpful if we can get on the same page here. So uh, where are you? What, what page are you on? First page of the PDF. What page? Okay, the first page of the PDF. Yeah, right there. So form does form identification. The pair. Okay, gotcha. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so that this is like, I mean, there's that little footnote that says there's 305 first class, 447 second class, and 277 third class conditions in the New Testament. And there's previous some previous journal articles about them. But I guess my thought is how much, how, what's the significance of, if any, of this Greek grammar rule to, because he, according to the slide, he says the, the conditional here in the Greek is a third class conditional, which means it might fail to happen. And that was if what you heard from the beginning remains in you you will also remain in the son and in the father. Now, how he separates that out from salvation is a little bit of a mystery, but he says that it might fail to happen that you will, that, that what you heard from the beginning remains in you. So, and he bases that on it, this being a third class conditional, uh, I just I so if you go if you down to if you scroll down to page 167 of this particular article. Well, I guess okay, my first question is, is this I I'm not hearing that it's based on a hard and fast grammar rule, but anyways, I'm curious as to, okay, but keep going. So, so this one says this degree of probability. Uh, for I mean, I guess we should really do first the other one, which is the the immediately preceding point, which is on the previous page. It says basis of potentiality, uh, and there you can see that there's a variety of bases of potentiality. And the question is, why are you? why is the writer using the mood of contingency and this the author in this in grace theological journal has somehow concluded that there's various a certain number that are based on various bases but the purpose he says in listing these is not to provide a system of classification but just to illustrate and enforce the point that these can third class conditions are indeed doubtful contingent undetermined belonging to the future, all of the instances manifest this quality. And he thinks that an examination of the examples will confirm the claim, but then he turns to the question of degree of probability. I mean, yeah, it's been a while since I've read this, but I thought that the, for the third class, it's just something that could or couldn't happen. Like basically the context was going to determine what, the how exactly to analyze the third class versus where the first and second were a little more more concrete um 
And I think you may have just scrolled down. I, I was looking at my copy and I didn't see where you are on which page you are. But if you're, yeah, if you go back up, if you scroll back up from where you are, uh, there you go. Uh, sorry, keep <laughs> go back down again to one to the that list of probabilities. Uh, there you go. Uh, and then sli slightly up so that it, you get this one and the next page a little bit uh, the other way. Uh, oh, you can't quite get all of them on the same page. But you can see there's no indication of probability in 120 cases. Certain not to be fulfilled in seven. And then uh, on, if you go back up to 168 again, you see there's like somewhere is certain, somewhere is probable, somewhere it's doubtful, somewhere it's improbable, somewhere it's possible, somewhere it's conceivable. I mean, obviously, a lot of these are just, uh, may, I mean, he, he says he uses context clues to figure this out. And yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that that's the right way to do it. But I guess my point is, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant about saying, well, this is a third class conditional. Therefore, it means it might help fail to happen. So, I, I, mean, I, I mean, like I said, when I studied it, and this has been a while, I, I, I came away thinking, so with the third class conditional, you, it's really just going to be, it depends on the context. But the first and second class, I thought were like the grammar made it a little more hard and fast. Now, I, let's, uh, but let's switch back to the verse that Eli is talking about. Because I think I agree with his conclusion. Setting aside the, gra the grammatical question, I think he's right that there's a, somewhat of an expression of doubt in this case. So it, as you see, that which you heard from the beginning remains in you. If that which you heard from the beginning remains in you, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. Okay. So the conditional here in the Greek is third class conditional, which means it might fail to happen. It definitely, whether it's third class or not, which I don't doubt that it is, it, he's right that there's an expression of doubt that it may or may not happen here. Now, from which point of view? That's a good question also. Um, but yeah, now here's the um, challenge that I would have for Eli what does it mean? What did you hear from the beginning? I would think that's a gospel. And what does it mean for the gospel to remain in you other than to continue believing? Now, look at the, the uh, I can think it's Apotheotis, but look what follows the conditional. You also will remain in the Son. So if you continue believing, you'll remain in the sun. Well, wait a minute. What's in the sun? <laughs> right? Doesn't doesn't First John five say that the life is in the sun? <laughs> okay. So he's um, yeah. So it's um, So if I mean I think it is saying that if you fall away from the faith, you will you will lose your union with the Son. That's the problem, Eli. It's that you know it's if the if you stop believing, you'll stop being united to the Son. That's a very that 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 has to relate to eternal life because the life is in the Son. That's the issue.
Yeah. That's it's pretty critical. And I hope he I hope that he's getting the chance to listen to this, not because we're, you know, the the fountain of all knowledge or something like that, but just because I think it will help to hopefully it will help to kind of eliminate him as to where we're likely to go when we discuss it with him. I mean, obviously in this case it's not a a we debate, but the I mean it's all it's certainly possible that several of the people who have already debated me are also debating you and vice versa. Uh, I think we, we should assume that if he's debating me on this, he might also at some future point debate you on it as well. And it would be good for him to have both of our perspectives, but also on a lot of these points, our perspective, as you can hear, is not that different. So I hope, I hope it's beneficial to him. I see we've been going for about an hour. Are you good to continue for a bit? Um, yeah, let's we can let's let's see if we can get another slide in. Okay, <laughs> what, only another only another two, hour or two for one more slide. The condition here is a third class condition, which means it might fail to happen. They might not remain. Um, what about perseverance verses? For example, Philippians one six: He who began the good work will complete it. Many use it as a proof for the perseverance of the saints, but the context shows that the good work here is the financial participation in the gospel. We also see that Paul thanks again uh, his audience in chapter 4 about the same reason. And a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians 8, look at the uh, shared uh, language here. We urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete a new gracious work. What is the gracious work here? According to uh, verse 4, it's the participation in the support of the saints. Part of me is kind of curious how he... how he fits this into the larger context of Philippians 1. I don't know if it makes sense right now to dig into that. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I I heard, I feel like when I hear the free grace folks dismiss this as a being related to financial participation, I, it just doesn't ring true to my reading of the text. And I don't know, do, does it make sense to you to dig into the text here? Yeah, let's take a quick look. Um... Let's see. So here, I'll, I'll pull it in just a sec. Okay. Um, well, let's just start. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace be Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all uh, making my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Okay, so there is this term partnership in the gospel. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn 
for you, um, all with the afflictions of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer and my love uh, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may be uh, may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. <sighs> yeah. So the context of being kept pure and blameless to the day of Christ Jesus, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus, um, does not lead me, it leads me away from thinking, hey, this partnership in the gospel means donating financial resources to the spread of the gospel. It sounds more like they were preaching alongside Paul or helping spread the gospel alongside Paul. But the bringing it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, I think that's the issue, right? So what is Eli saying? That they're going to keep giving, the church of Philippi is going to keep giving money until Jesus returns? Is that what he thinks it's, it means? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear him out. But that seems odd to me. Anyway, it is. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree that it's and I mean that's part of the reason that I think this is so odd. Is I mean I, I would understand about the idea of Paul having a concern for the financial care of the church. He does have that concern, but I I mean if I if I look at the whole context. I mean, obviously, there's the grace and peace to you, and I thank God upon every remembrance of you, and you're always in all my prayers. And then, is there really the first thing that comes to his mind, the money? When he says your fellowship in the gospel, does he mean your, by fellowship in the gospel, does he really mean the money you've been sending? I, I would really be, uh, to me, that would be kind of a surprising interpretation of koinonia as the fin the financial uh, transactions. And I'm not sure where, you know, I'm not sure where that comes from. I mean, in Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. There is the monetary sense in Romans 15.26 that they were making a contribution for the poor saints, which are at Jerusalem. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians, uh, God's faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the cup of blessing which we bled is blessed, is it not the communion? That commu word communion is the same word of the blood of Christ. And, you know, although it can have a monetary or financial sense. It's just a little surprising. I mean, the like in Philippians 1, 5, they're saying your fellowship in the gospel. I mean, contextually, the in the gospel is what tells you what kind of fellowship we're talking about. But you can't pay for the gospel. I mean, that was Simon Magus's, one of his errors. And then in Philippians 2, 
if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, and then in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. I mean, in Philippians, it's the other two uses of that same word are not financial. I, I kind of, it, it feels a little bit strained, to put it mildly, that to suggest that the fellowship in the gospel here has as its primary sense the financial participation. So, yeah, I, I wonder what Eli would make of this verse. Uh, Therefore, my brethren, as ye have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work of your good pleasure. Does he think this relates to financial participation in, to giving money at church? Not relates to it, but is exhausted. Is the meaning of this passage exhausted by you know, dropping uh, money into the offering plate. I mean, and that's not that. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's the, same, it's the same idea. Like, God is working in you. But anyways. And it's not that different from, you know, right after one, one five, which talks about the fellowship in the gospel, and then 6 is confident that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He goes on at verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of, G of Christ. I mean, that's that till the day of Christ and unto the day of Jesus Christ well, has to be the same thing. And then, the, he follows that up with being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. I mean, that it's just hard to understand how that couldn't mean it. What it, yeah. it seems obviously to mean. So I, I, yeah, like you said, I would love to hear his take. Maybe he doesn't yeah. bring it up in the debate. I don't know. It, okay. So I think in a debate sense, the, the problem is it is hard to deliver a, quick, succinct, one-punch knockout to this view. But if you take the time to go over the context, I think people can start to see, man, this is really strained, what he's saying. Um, but it's it's the type of thing where he can make an argument fairly quickly that can take you a long time to unravel. So <laughs> that's the challenge. That is the debate challenge. That's why you get paid the big bucks. On another note, I'm not sure why he says the parallel passage is in 2 Corinthians 8, 6. Yeah, and that context is totally different. Yeah, but we can look at that. But uh, I mean, I really anyways. think the parallel passage is like five verses later. I don't, I don't think you have to go all the way to another book to a different church. But yeah. anyway, all right, here we go. So yeah. it's the same motive here, motive. But beloved, it's another verse. Beloved, we are convinced of better things regarding you. Many use it as a proof that uh, the, the audience in Hebrews will persevere. But the fact that the author is, uh, is giving them assurance they will persevere is not a proof that he didn't think that they might fall away. I mean, if, if a father tells his son, I'm sure you'll do great in your exam, it doesn't mean that the father thinks that if the son doesn't study for the exam, that he'll pass. And that's why we have the warnings in Hebrews. Wait, wait, go back. That's the, it's something. Okay. Let's, let's let's look at this point too. Okay, so in so Hebrews six goes through the the warning passages, 
And then it says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things regarding you and things that accompany salvation, even though we're speaking in this way. Okay. The fact that the author is sure about them is meant to motivate them and encourage them. Agree with that. This, however, does not negate all the warning passages in the epistle. I agree with that. If a father tells a son that he is sure he would do a great job in his final exam, it does not mean he thinks the son can pass, even if he doesn't study for it. I mean, Eli, you do think that, right? Like, that's exactly your position. I, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm missing his point. Um, but he's saying that we can get to heaven whether we persevere in the faith or not. So that's like passing the exam without studying for it. I'm maybe I'm missing his point, but I think I think he's the I I, I think that example does not clarify his position at all. It seems to undermine it. Discerner says determinism can be overlaid over all the language of indeterminism, bit of a theological trick. It's also known as compatibilism, just saying. But Which anyway. is a theological trick. In the same way that, uh, anyway, I, I'm not going to pursue that point right now. So okay. uh, uh, he says, I'm with Dan in saying stopping believing is stopping salvation. But then he goes for, full Ozas and doesn't believe anyone can stop believing anyway. So it's a moot point. Uh, but coming back to Eli's comment here, I think Eli is having trouble distinguishing between his lampoon of JD's position and JD's position. So remember, he in his mind, JD's position is that salvation will occur no matter the means. But JD's position is, I think, pretty sure, uh, he's having a very long sip of uh, soda right now. Uh, but he, his position is that it will happen through means, not despite all means. And this comes back to that, that same idle argument we talked about a few times before, which is just because God has ordained that we will persevere doesn't mean that he's just ordained that we'll persevere even if we fall away. It, it, in the same way that he ordained that Abraham would be the father of uh, the people of Israel, but not, not if he doesn't uh, sleep with Sarah. That It wasn't apart from his sleeping with Sarah, but it was nevertheless guaranteed. It nevertheless was going to happen, but it was going to happen through the means. So the idea that the warning uh, that when he says this doesn't negate all the warnings in the epistle, if a father tells his son he is sure he would do great on his final exam, it doesn't mean that he thinks his son can pass even if he doesn't study for it. Well, of course, it doesn't mean that he doesn't think that, but uh, it doesn't. It also doesn't mean he's going to just let his son play uh, whatever the popular game is these days, uh, Counter Strike or whatever. I have no idea what's the popular game these days, but. <laughs> Whatever, uh, whatever's the popular game, StarCraft. I think that's still popular somewhere. So, you no, know, it doesn't mean he's going to let him just stay on the computer and playing games all night long, just because he he's confident in his son's ability to do great uh, on the exam. 
based on studying for the exam. So if he thinks that he will do great on the exam if he studies, the father will also encourage the son to study. I mean, that's just the, I don't, I don't, and it doesn't seem that complicated. And I'm not, I, I just, I feel like the objection is not, is coming from a place of assuming that JD's position is, even if we don't study, we're going to pass the exam. But JD's position is, God is not only going to make sure that we pass the exam, he's also going to make sure we study for it. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm Possibly I'm missing something that Eli's up position he's coming from. But I, I really feel like he's so focused on the, his characterization of JD's position and has lo he's lost track of JD's actual position. Very good. Well, I think we pr I probably need to wrap it up at this point. Um, so this has uh, been good. I don't know if you have any uh, concluding remarks you'd like to to make as we start to close this up. Uh, no, I'm just trying to look ahead briefly on this. Uh, it looks like we are, <laughs> if the slides are indicative, then we it's somewhere around the 24th minute of the presentation where we where we'll have will be out of uh, material. And I think we started around seven minutes in. So we have, we are less than 50% of the way through his presentation. Uh, but I will, basically I'm gonna resave our, our uh, video at this point. Uh, and hopefully next time we can pick up there. I think it's a, I think it's a worthy challenge that we're going through. And uh, I do appreciate the people, Discerner and Jamie and Patrick. And I don't remember who else. I think uh, Slam commented at one point. Uh, I do, oh, Tim as well. All right, salvation is secure if Jesus saves you. And Jason says, when does God unregenerate someone? I think the unregenerate would be degenerate somehow. But or, that's. Or kill. Or kill. Yeah. Uh, Die. <laughs> yeah. Or kill, yeah. But uh, slay. Uh, anyway, the um, I appreciate each of your participation as well. Uh, I am looking forward to the next time. And any other uh, concluding thoughts? No, no, um, it's good stuff. I think I think you will. I think it'll be a good debate between you and Eli. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I'm curious as to when it starts to shape up, like where your specific focus is going to be, like what, uh, because to be honest, it's broad, you know, and that's, you know, one thing it's, we, you never have enough, even if you, even if you narrow the focus, you never have enough time, <laughs> but um, you'll have to prioritize one or a couple things, um, unfortunately. You won't be able to cover everything. Yes, that was that was one thing that definitely arose from my recent debate with Nick. Was I I present I was instead of doing what I normally do, which is try to focus on one thing. I it was suggested to me at some point. I don't remember who suggested it or how it was suggested. Maybe I suggested it of going through like a top ten list of issues, and that was just too much for the debate. I mean, we, we barely scratched the surface on any of those points. So 
I will try, I think I'm going to imitate your approach in terms of maybe even looking at Grudem's breakdown of the five main areas of problem and then focus on one or two areas within that. And I think you pointed even, you were very specific. You were like sub point C of point three of the five points that Grudem raises, something like that. I don't remember exactly. And I think that was a good way of focusing the debate on a narrow point, because I think we could, I mean, we have spent hours and hours on each one of his slides. So anyway. Yeah. 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 I, th I think that the Dilla book is what, like almost 1200 pages or something like that. <laughs> it's like, it oh, is yeah. a massive work. I think it's, a, I want to say 800, but it's, it's a massive tome. Okay. Yeah. It's oh. a little over 700. So. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, okay. Very good. Thank you for this uh, excellent discussion. Thanks to all that's uh, been participating. Um, Deserter, look, I hear you. Uh, I do. I will any day place the pressure on systematics and philosophy rather than exegesis. That's just me. So, anyways. All right. Uh, from my side, um, God be with you, Turner fan. God be with you all. God be with you as well.